Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining uh, the Machinist Message, and we are joined by a special guest today, Steph Hutka, and um, I'm Patrick Keenan, and I'm here with Alan Smith. I will note that we are on all different time zones, so it's going to be varying energy levels today as we uh, delve into some various themes um, in Steph's latest newsletter. But before we jump in, perhaps an intro would be a great place to start. So, Steph, uh, why don't you tell us uh, what you're up to? What what uh, brings you to the world of AI, and what's your take on it? Yeah, for sure. So first off, uh, Patrick and Al, super excited to be here. Yeah, a little bit about me. So I'm a design researcher uh, by trade. Uh, I'm the head of design research at a company called Sendful. I founded this company a couple of months back. Uh, I'm focused uh, on providing fractional design research leadership at the intersection of AI and spatial computing. And we'll unpack a lot of that uh, during today's podcast. Uh, but I've been working in the spatial uh, computing space as a design researcher for the last 10 years, uh, led research for a number of different zero to one product launches, uh, Adobe Aero, Adobe Substance 3D Suite, uh, worked on MetaQuest 3, and before that uh, was a dyed in the wool academic. I got my PhD from University of Toronto in cognitive neuroscience. Unbeknownst to me, there'd be a great through line uh, between studying multisensory perception and UX for headsets, but that definitely was not evident back in the day. So that's a little bit about me. Awesome. Damn, yeah. And... Steph, that's a resume. What is, <laughs> what a like pre-roll. That's amazing. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Stoked. You hit now, now I'm all like areas where we're just how are we even going to like, how, how are we going to, okay. All right. I, I got to calm down. I'm like too fired up all of a sudden. <laughs> the energy levels, time zone doesn't matter anymore. I'm, I'm here for it guys. Let's go. Nice. Sweet. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, overlap there, and uh, it'll be exciting to dig into the topic. So the format of the show is just more conversational. And uh, yeah, we thought we'd use uh, your latest newsletter as kind of a jumping off point um, to have some conversations. Uh, you have like, I think, four signals. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, your newsletter, and we can talk about the first uh, the first signal you got here. Yeah, absolutely. So I write a weekly newsletter uh, covering the latest and greatest uh, around spatial computing and AI from a human computer interaction slash design research lens. We won't get into the nuances of how those two things are overlapping, similar versus different. Uh, but uh, long story short, each week come out with one of these. And uh, this particular newsletter was my first one of 2024. And I was really excited about this one to talk about not only some of signals of the future that we saw in 2023, using some forecasting language there in terms of like the smaller local innovations, these little seeds of the future uh, that we see uh, having the potential to grow. Uh, so taking inventory of those signals uh, and then seeing how those might play out based on the evidence that we saw. Researcher at heart, I bring research to everything. This is no exception. Uh, so yeah, I've got five uh, different signals and then relatedly the five uh, things to watch in 2024 uh, that follow. Uh, I can jump right into those or I can pause. And yeah, I, I think we can jump in. And I think uh, what's really cool to see is the examples um, and because I think that's, you know, that's how we see the future manifesting is like every week there's another crazy thing. Um, and so why don't we just talk through this first signal, which is AI and spatial computing become more deeply intertwined, lighting the way from novelty to retention for smart glasses and headsets. Um, so uh, and where possible, Steph, if you can, too, if there's terms like XR, 
or uh, you know spatial computing for the muggles for the plebeians for the folks like me uh, who don't work in that space every day like just educate us on on the terms as you go uh, so that you know a, a lot of people who listen to this um, we're assuming are semi-hip to it but are definitely not always professionals in the space and uh, this is looking for that so yeah as it fill us in on the vernacular as you go yeah, absolutely. I'll say not at all muggles. I was just having a conversation uh, with a, a design leader based in the Bay Area here just last week. I, I'm an adjunct at Berkeley. I was trying to rally some folks to be uh, guest lecturers. And we were having this conversation about spatial computing, which I'll define in just a second. Uh, and this, this person was like, I've never actually tried a headset, deep confession. I'm like, that's not, not at all something to be ashamed about. If you're not working in this relatively you know, niche bubble, uh, there haven't been a lot of opportunities to try a headset unless you happen to you know, know someone, hang out at their house, you know, if someone's working on a product team that happens to be working on a headset. And we haven't, as of yet, really shown people what is that killer use case or even the user value such that you go out and, and spend a lot of money on one of these headsets. But I think a lot of that is going to change 2024 i'll talk about uh, so spatial computing i'm using this as a uh, blanket term for technologies that blend the digital and real world so if you're familiar with augmented reality so uh, digital content overlaid on the environment i might use that as ar virtual reality on the other end of that spectrum where you're completely immersed in a virtual environment and kind of everything in between we can get into something called the reality virtuality spectrum that talks about kind of all of those steps in between basically you can think of dialing up how much virtual stuff you have overlaid in your environment and all of that put together is spatial computing another kind of very similar blanket term extended reality or XR, uh, I use somewhat interchangeably here, kind of based on the different signals that we saw in 2023. So probably like the first thing people would think is, oh, well, that's like virtual reality. It's like the Oculus or it's like Quest. Um, I think then there's also, you know, it's your phone, you're pointing your phone, it's Pokemon Go, you know, you're looking at stuff in the environment. Um, and then there's these, you know, kind of theaters where you're standing in like that giant sphere in Las Vegas, which is, you know, kind of spatial. You can look around. Um, how do you think about that spectrum of, you know, what is and is not spatial computing? Is that even a useful thing to, to think about? Yeah, I... At the end of the day, I think about how does this appear for the end users of this technology? We can talk about the academic definitions, the industry definitions, and mm -hmm. we could probably own an entire podcast about those terms. Uh, but what is that really for for a person who you know, is, you know just wants to experience this thing rather than than read about these definitions? And I think that is really a way that you are kind of pushing uh, in a, I guess, you're, you're augmenting human capabilities with you know, something digital on your environment. And I think projection mapping could arguably be part of that definition. Uh, you could argue, counter argue that, oh, it has to be digital on top of a screen. But I think it's really this addition to your world via technology. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how I would guess, you know, in some, some flavor of that is how someone might describe the experience. So that's definitely the lens I wanna, wanna bring to this rather than talking about particular term or, you know, the paper in, in 1997 that defined augmented reality. Could nerd, about, nerd out about that, but not super user-centered. Yeah, I mean, let's definitely delve into the incoming um, use cases around AI. Yeah. I think that's, that's the interesting um, thing that's developing. 
Uh, yeah, what comes to mind on the top of the list for this sort of number one signal? How are you seeing this? Yeah, I think AI and, the, and spatial computing coming together really looks like helping us be able to better understand our environment. So for example, if I'm wearing a pair of smart glasses that's enabled with uh, with AI, and there's another a couple other sort of prerequisites here, like you have a really great you know, maybe 5G connection, or you maybe have on-device compute, we'll talk more about that. But what that might be like is put on these glasses, I'm in a new city, and I can ask, hey, what's that building over there? Tell me about uh, this landmark. And I get a bunch of information get it to the side of my, my field of view, so I can easily look up at the building, maybe look at some of the cool architectural features, and then read a little bit more about this. And why is this important to the city? Uh, or maybe right now, to give an example, I'm a big trail runner and I'll sometimes even take up my phone and I have various apps for identifying different um, you know plants that I might come across and I'll like take out my phone have to do this big login process and then like take a maybe take a picture of the plant wait for that to upload maybe with my really fantastic future spatial computing glasses I just have these on maybe they double as sunglasses and I can quickly take a look at that tree and ask hey what uh, what am I looking at? And I'll get that information and that'll be really cool. I'll learn more about my environment. So those are a couple examples of how I could see this really playing out this intertwinement of spatial and, and AI. Right. So Do you think that that's the first use case? Like, let's say, let, let's think about the, that person uh, who you had over the other day and they're like, you know, confession, I haven't worn a headset yet. Let's say that they never came by and they were going to encounter it in the wild and it's coming up you know somewhat soon what's that use case that just start like more and more people are going to hit it kind of like um you know when when chat gpt first started coming out and people were using it they're like you just got to try it get it to write a haiku or whatever and like everybody tried it for that and it was just like a, what's the one thing you think is or maybe a couple of things you think are going to be the thing that draws people into it and it's like oh, okay, I get this. I see how I could use this in other places or I feel the power of it. Like when you get that moment of like, wow, okay, this is cool. Yes, I have an anecdote about the feel the power moment. And I think there might be some differences in the feel the power moment versus, hey, I'm going to keep wearing these things as a function of time. So the retentive use cases. Uh, but actually, I have, have a newsletter uh, that I wrote about this, uh, an experience I still remember from five years ago. Uh, I was trying the, uh, the Magic Leap um, uh, mixed reality headset. So uh, this, uh, this is overlaying digital content onto the environment, mixed reality being another one of those sort of confusing umbrella terms, basically blending digital and physical. And I was trying out an experience uh, that was a collaboration between this headset uh, company, Magic Leap, and the Icelandic uh, rock band Sigur Ross called Tanandi. And I, maybe some of this is colored by my own enjoyment of Sigur Ross music, longtime fan, uh, but it was this audiovisual experience that I thought, oh, this, this, this is going to be interesting. And to this day, that experience, when someone asked me, like, what blew you away in mixed reality, I referenced this. Uh, and so I'll kind of break down what this experience is like. So you put on your headset and you're sort of slowly immersed in this, this otherworldly, uh, uh, I want to describe it as sort of an under, uh, like an underwater scene, but this is overlaid in your real world. You have some occlusion going on. You have these really beautiful uh, sounds kind of paired with how these digital objects are popping up in your space. 
Um, and you can use natural gestures, you can move your hands around, you can reach out and touch uh, some of these elements. And the way that this experience was designed not only sort of slowly drew you into this very kind of magical, whimsical experience that was really well enmeshed in your environment where you were trying it out, uh, but they also just really paired audio and visual in such a way that you're like, my brain was pretty much tricked that like, I am going to touch a thing. Like there is a 3D thing. I can feel this little tube of this little flower, this or whatever this little underwater thing is. Uh, and like the fact that it could fool my brain so effectively, it's like, dang, that's, that's really neat. Uh, so I think that, you know, that's one of the experiences that if I could just put someone in a headset to say, hey, imagine this could be a new way you're experiencing, uh, you know, your favorite band, uh, that I think that would be one of the experiences I'd, I'd, um, I'd put folks in. But of course, you're not going to be hanging out in Tanandi most likely for like six hours a day or taking that with you, uh, you know, when you travel. Whereas uh, if you have maybe the object recognition uh, example or maybe another example, we can talk a little bit about that the social implications of this, but another example uh, put forth in a book called uh, Supersight by David Rose from 2021 talks a lot about this, this um, smart glasses, PIs, coupling. Imagine you're at a conference and you, it, the sort of level is set that you're, everyone's going to have these glasses that will tell you the name of the person that you're speaking about and maybe a little bit of their LinkedIn information. Uh, so you don't have those embarrassing moments where you're remembering someone's name, uh, you're forgetting someone's name and that information is provided to you. That might be a really interesting use case or uh, translation use case. Imagine I'm going to a country uh, where they speak a language that I do not know and I can just immediately, I know this was part of the Google I.O. keynote way back when, like I think at least two years ago, uh, and I can now uh, re real time understand what that person is saying to me, uh, have that real time translation, and maybe if I'm lucky be able to, to get some translation back to that person so we can actually have a dialogue, of course, how fast all of this is computing and can kind of recognize what I want to say and what the other person is saying really can make or break this experience. But I think those are some other, like, honestly, if I just had glasses that could do that, I would shell out a good amount of money just to use those maybe like twice a year when those translation experiences happen. So I think what I'm getting at here is there's a couple of these different touch points. If I want the wow, really impressive novelty experience, if I want the this is really, really valuable, but maybe not every day, all the way to this is something I might use, uh, you know, maybe multiple times a week. And that might be a different type of object, real time mm -hmm. recognitions or maybe like a multimodal chat GPT on your head. I love that the thing that got you into this, um, or at least, you know, a light bulb moment, you know, uh, of the, the feeling of the power of like, you know, how good this could be is essentially an art piece. And the fact that, you know, as you're describing the level of craft there, uh, seemed like it was extremely high. And, you know, I, I love hearing, you know, that type of thing where it's like, somebody just put so much into this art piece, as opposed to like, I don't know, some app for, you know, whatever, like, you know, just some junk. Um, and the essentially like the usefulness of it and like money making potential versus the amount of effort and craft that was put into it just seems so mismatched um, in the most beautiful possible way. Right. I, I love that. And it, yeah, it, it sounds like it hit. 
Oh yeah, no, hundred percent. I think for anyone listening to this, any maybe any creators on the on the on the podcast who are like hearing that and thinking, oh, I might have a multi-year collaboration with a big company and have this relatively niche experience that might one day, five years from now, be talked about on a podcast. Uh, <laughs> I think there there's a there's a there's some um, a silver lining to this. So I, I I that experience that particular moment where I talk about like reaching out and like touching that digital object and thinking that it was actually real. Uh, Apple's called this a key moment in design. So this really um, this feature interaction that really takes advantage of the unique capabilities of the medium. I feel like that's something we can take away, whether it's a really cool art piece or if it's something that might be just really utilitarian or help us with our productivity. I think like in their keynote, they, they show something actually with interoperability where you might look at your MacBook Pro and that automatically pairs. And that's uh, like, that's a, that sort of interop plus special, you know, specialness of having this big screen. So I feel like we can take away something really pragmatic from that, that Ross experience. Like what are those key moments that we can design for? It's funny. I remember mine for the iPhone and it was your iPhone, Pat. It was uh, at the old movement office and you had the first version of the iPhone. Maybe we've talked about this before on the podcast, but it still strikes me every time. And it was sitting on the table and you were like, just touch it. And I put my finger out and it was just a Safari page or something like with some text on it. And I remember feeling like the text was like stuck to my finger and like being like, whoa, that's crazy. You could just touch it. Um, it was my, I think it was my first time using a touch screen too, which is weird uh, to think, but it was just so good. And as far as like that key moment, you know, for Apple of like, oh, wow, this just feels so good to scroll and then picking it up and using my thumb. And now I'm thinking of like, how many times have I scrolled, you know, like through pages of junk uh, at this point in time. But yeah. Anyway, thanks for the the, the sojourn there. Um, no, it's, yeah, yeah that, I think that's the, um, so I, I, I think there's a couple themes that we cover here. One is like art is a great way to push a medium. Cause I think that with the Sigur Ross thing, it wasn't just that it was beautiful. It's that they tuned the performance to the device, which is probably like a pretty primitive device. Uh, you know, the computation, even on the quest is, is like a mobile phone. And so to like, part of art is like knowing the medium and it's, it's just a different medium than the phone. It's like a lower processor and there's just way more pixels on the screen to move around. Uh, I think another thing that I wanted to touch on is you know, Al, you were talking about like, what's the thing that's going to really resonate? Like what's, so, so there's the wow and there's the retention and Steph, you're talking about retention here in the signal one. And I just have been using QR codes nonstop. Like to me, that is the breakthrough, um, XR experience is that like, now you literally have a URL attached to a menu, like a door, a sign, or like whatever, a parking meter. And so. I remember it was only 10 years ago that people were like, QR codes are out. No one's going to use QR codes. It's like, yeah, and, yeah. you know, and then I partly COVID, but also partly everybody's got a phone now. They're everywhere. And so you can imagine like just swap out QR code for image recognition and then swap out open in phone to like augment the thing in front of you. And so it is this nice stepping stone to, it's like a very primitive um, realization of, of XR. I love that. And I, and I have a fun maybe side note, I won't go on too long about this, but when you're talking about QR codes, and I feel like we sort of poo-pooed them in North America for a long time, but I was doing this uh, international ethnography trip with another researcher 
uh, to companies back. We're doing this landscape study in China to sort of understand what was the state of uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, and AI at the time. And of course, we're also just kind of paying attention to like daily life, like how do you pay your bill? How do you get on transit? And sort of, and then contextualizing all the new fandangled Chinese stuff we were seeing kind of in that day to day. And QR codes were everywhere. They were much more sort of norm core um, and much more like what we saw post pandemic. Uh, so I feel like that is just plus one for QR codes, but also another plus one for maybe looking at other leading markets to inspire us totally. what is, you know, what's the uh, what's the future of, of uh, some of these different technologies? Because we do have these fixed incumbents, like I think about Visa and here, I went into a coffee shop, Dunkin' Donuts, and they're like, we don't take Visa. I'm like, what do you mean? You don't? They, we only take Gcash. And like, you can only get that if you're like Filipino or cash. And it's a QR code, right? So now instead of like having a terminal at a store, like all you need is this QR code, which is the unique identifier for that store. And so all, there's like a kind of dematerialization of some devices that just kind of go away. And we've been seeing this, you know, the calculator, the camera, but then there's like a rematerialization of like, perhaps inputs, you know, perhaps I can like activate all the screens around me or like, yeah, kind of even manifest devices through XR and like put stuff in, in my area, like screens. So yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. But I, another, th another question I had is back to the QR code in the phone, like we tie spatial computing a lot to headset or glasses or like something that is like giving you stereoscopic vision. But in many ways, like we get that with our phone, like there's Google Lens and there's kind of these recognizers. So I do wonder, like, is the future, like maybe this is a debate, like is the future, is stereoscopic necessary for spatial computing, do you think? Mm. I will say no, but I think we might be talking about an even bigger horizon here, which might be like future of ubiquitous computing, where I nest all the spatial stuff we're talking about. I think they're all related. So ubiquitous computing here, I'm referring to, you know, this practice of embedding information processing and like network communication into our, our kind of daily human environments. Uh, you might also hear about this like ambient computing. I know there was an earlier pod on the humane AI chip, the screenless device that's super contextually aware. It's kind of this idea of really interconnected technology, kind of not in your face, but just kind of passively doing stuff in the background to be able to, to help you like learn new things about the world or do things you couldn't do before in a very pro-social view of all of this. Uh, so I think maybe what you're de describing, kind of this future where you don't necessarily need the stereoscopic part, I might argue that that might be part of this bigger movement towards ubiquitous computing that I think we're just trying, starting to see kind of the next generation of it being unlocked because of advances with AI, advances with like speed of connectivity and, and compute and so on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know where I was going to fit this in, but like the humane pin is now uh, already is like oh. obsolete. Have I imagine you've yes. seen the rabbit. Yes. Um, <laughs> it is so nuts that they were able to make it at this price point. They're already sold out 10 million um, uh, pre-orders. You can order it. That's still. outrageous. I, I didn't know it was sold out like sold right out. away. That's yeah. so <laughs> boss. I love it. So wait, uh, 10 million pre-orders, 200 bucks. I'm just like, my math is crap. This is $200 million? No, it's more than that. Wait, Wait no. 10,000. 10,000. 
So that is uh, four zeros. So put four zeros here. I'm typing it in to make sure I got it right. Okay, yeah, well, that's two million bucks. That's not as crazy. Yeah. Um, but it's it's sign it's market signal like that that it sold yeah. out so fast, and so you know they're a startup, and good on them for doing this. The other thing I love about this is it's. Do you guys know Teenage Engineering? Shout out Teenage Engineering! I was so stoked to see this. You know, in the world of like minimalist black everything you know these guys are so wild and quirky and funky and bringing back that like italian design style yeah. like just so expressive and outrageous um yeah just like I love so it. yeah so um non sequitur from like from the just like just <laughs> physical buttons and like key color accents and clearly the craft is way up there and i was like i would buy this stuff but it is literally 10 times the amount of the other you know walking <laughs> yeah. on the market or whatever but to have that like level of design and craft at a 200 dollars price point that's like connected to the internet and gives me ai and has this like new action model it's it's very impressive i'm very impressed with what these guys were able to do yeah um, that's 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 awesome i mean i know i know that you know humane humane ai was so 2023 and it got a lot of you know very critical articles on it and like when i i wrote wrote about it too and i wanted to like give them at least like some credit like they like i think not only how they position it but also how it was discussed is like replacing the you know replacing the smartphone way too early for that but i do think they they had a clear vision that they really put a flag in the ground of like this is where ubiquitous computing is going and like much respect yeah. for that but i think this is just further signals kind of to that point we've yeah, talked about totally. that form factor and like if that form factor has a future and if it does they couldn't have taken the best first step like it, it was executed as well as it possibly could be today like they don't have a single misstep in that device with today's technology with the choices and constraints that you get from taking that form factor and going in that direction yeah. so it kind of remains to be seen like is it going to work and same thing with this thing right it's oh, like yeah. is this going to work yeah. is this going to be awesome i don't know but like it looks pretty fun it looks cool it's like it's got such a like like funness to it, which yeah. I'm just excited about. It feels um, like it's so. Toy. We should actually yeah. probably talk about it and be like, you know, what does this thing do, and how does this fit into any of our themes uh, around uh, XR, I, spatial computing, etc. Yeah. I've definitely got something for the second one, but I know uh, I'm sure I feel like Patrick, you have definitely more more stuff you can say about uh, Rabbit.tech. I can and definitely tie this back into another one of my signals uh, from the newsletter around multi-sensory inputs and natural interactions. But yeah, I'd love to to hear more about Rabbit.tech too. I, I checked out the site after Patrick talked about it uh, the other day, but yeah, I'd love to learn more too. Yeah, no, I, I think it's just an aside um, and we can get back to the signals, but I think what is really key is um i mean i'll go to this oops sorry i'll go to this thing uh which is this uh rotational camera so uh this to me uh what you can see in here is all the components of the device that will work i actually don't think this thing is going to work i don't think people have an appetite to have an airpod case uh phone and glasses and carry them all around i i don't i think some people will but i but I, what i think is interesting is the comp what are the components of this sort of new device platform 
and definitely one of them is this camera that is a camera that you're not making frames of pictures. And so back to the QR code example, I think one reason QR codes worked is because they're so fast on the default camera and every OS has a shortcut to a camera. So on um, iPhone, it's on your home screen or you can double tap the back and I have that set to the camera. On Android, it's double tap the uh, power button and you get the camera. So the, the fastest way to capture what's in front of you. Now on a phone, it looks like it's a photo camera for taking pictures of people. And so, but in behind is the QR code reader. This one is unabashedly for capturing your environment. And I remember on a pre in a previous conversation, Al, we were talking about photos and I was like, well, you're gonna wanna frame the photo and get the right shot. And you were like, well, couldn't the AI do that for you? And it's like, yeah, actually, if you are constantly taking pictures of your environment, we can select and curate the right photos for your entire day. You can be like, I want 10 photos or I want 100 photos and make them really good. And so just recreate all those moments from scratch, right? Like, you know, there's going to be enough data recorded to be able to rebuild it as cinematic as we want, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I love that this isn't even a camera. It's called the 360 degree rotational <laughs> eye, right? right? Like that's a very intentional choice. Yeah. Yes. It's, yes. It's, and who's the eye it? of the device, like the mm -hmm. rabbit eye. Mm -hmm. Post camera world. Love it. Yeah. And so I think there's that. And then there is the, um, there is the, uh, the speaker. Where is it? I don't know. There's like a far field mic, uh, and there's a speaker. And so you basically have vision and sound. And so the important thing to realize is that's not for you, right? Like that's not for you to hear and for you to see it's for rabbit to hear and rabbit to see and then what can uh rabbit do with that that's where they have this rabbit os and they've trained it to sort of like be able to help you complete actions i think this push to talk button is like a step in the direction but it we will look back on the push to talk button in the same way we look back on like the home button on a, a phone I think that will go away and you, there will just be an, a custom of like, Hey, it's always on kind of like Google home. Um, and the wake word will go away and it will just be appropriate to context. You'll probably look at it and, and it will activate. Um, same thing with humane, right? Like, you know, they were very intentional about, you know, you put mm -hmm. your hand up, it's a social signal. Everybody knows this little baby machine is listening to us now. Same thing here. Like, you know, you probably got to put your thumb on the side or your finger over. And that kind of lets people know around you know that oh the there's listening going on here. Totally, yes. And so the speaker, you know, sound, sound, and vision, I think, are the big things. And then they've got their own model um, that they think is going to be more helpful than than OpenAI. It's going to be a Cambrian explosion of devices, uh, I think, this year. So, <laughs> uh, and probably Cambrian none of them will be right. Yeah. Yeah, I love the, that point about, you know, that, that that audio is not for you, it's for Rabbit. And this there's another signal that I talk about around kind of how we move forward our privacy conversations, because who knows what sort of information, what sort of PI is being picked up by <laughs> this, this far field audio. It might be really useful to help you learn about your environment, but what else is being, is, is you know, coming in there. And one of the things I talk about is like last year, we saw some of these, these privacy concerns around AI and sensor technologies kind of maturing from serious discussions to legislation, I only predict that we're, we're going to see more of that because to your point, this Cambrian explosion just means there's just a lot more 
being detected in our environment in really increasingly more robust ways. Uh, but that was my shameless plug to attempt to do a thematic analysis on the spot and tie it all back yes. to. <laughs> I, I love it. So let's jump in there for a minute on privacy. And you know, one of the things we use um, on the show to talk about people's reactions to AI is these personas. And uh, I made up these personas uh, a few episodes ago before this event that we did. And one of the personas is Privacy Paula. And Privacy Paula is very concerned about you know, our privacy and uh, what it means that there's this always on listener and where does the data go and who gets to see it and what's copyright and what's not and what's yours and what's being listened to all the time versus uh, all of these questions. And so give us a couple takes on, on privacy. You know, what, what, are, what are you thinking um, in the land of spatial computing, you know, you're talking about having, you know, glasses on all the time that could see everything. People still put like a piece of tape over their monitor screen, right? Like, or over their like a uh, monitor camera. People are worried about privacy, uh, especially privacy Paula, who's fighting the battle in AI. Um, yeah, to jump in. Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple of different levels of this, which is one thinking of early adopters who will have kind of all of these devices, the persons who are going to have the Apple Vision Pro integrated with their existing device ecosystem of all Apple things versus the people who do not have that. And so how, like, I think there's one level where you might be, you have a bunch of technology adopters together where everyone kind of knows the rules, like maybe that conference example where everyone does get a pair of their smart glasses where you can detect everyone's name, everyone knows what's going on. But sort of the moment we move outside of that, I think there's, you know, the, the sort of public perception and trust in just AI sort of as this diffuse concept or trust in, you know, uh, uh, of what this or what are the implications of what, what this will do to our world and all the sort of sci-fi narratives around it. I don't have a great answer other than the fact that we need to really make sure we keep including not only our end users when we're looking at building these technologies, but always including kind of the bystander perspective. And I think that's probably that's nothing new, but more than ever taking that into account. And I think on the sort of legislation side, we saw a bunch of uh, uh, movement forward around consumer uh, biometric data protection as uh, so there was like a policy statement around emerging technologies from FTC uh, last year in a bunch of different states in in America had different biometric privacy law proposals I think that's another element that will uh, emerge here uh, as well that's I guess more on the end user side uh, this is me just spewing a bunch of top of mind things but I certainly don't have all the answers and yeah, I'm, I'm both excited and, and terrified to see how some of this stuff unfolds over the next year. And yeah, how much can we be part of the, those independent oversight bodies as the people building this stuff to, to kind of lay those, you know, make sure we're doing this responsibly for that sort of bystander or the non-early adopter crowd. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's important to separate for the conversation of privacy for a moment, software from hardware. So I think, uh, you know, a bunch of privacy issues um, come out of uh, using a Mac that exists already or your phone that exists already and there's software that's built on top. Now there's cases where you want to override the software. And I think that, that I think we will see this split of kind of like large corporate sanctioned AI experiences and then pure hacker open source uh, just go for it 
uh, use cases. And we're, yeah, I, I, I was looking for the link, but there's basically a group that's doing like a kind of always on assistant and with like composable parts and like you can just run an LLM locally for yourself. And so they're just going for it, right? And so then the question is, which which one of those um, fields will push the medium further? Like I do think Rabbit is pushing things like, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of form factors that are pushing things forward. And to build devices at scale, you need that level of like, these are our privacy guarantees. You know, this is what we're gonna do. This is the governance we're falling under. But then there's the hacker element, which we're already seeing with LLMs and the open sourcing of Llama too. It is like just people are driving forward with all kinds of really interesting um, new uh, builds on the model that's really fast, that's local. And so I think there's like for the corporate um, kind of large company mass production device oriented um, form factor that will require governance. I think that will require kind of like rules, guarantees, audits. I think there is another solution, and this is the kind of libertarian view, which is the best way to guarantee privacy is by having everything locally on your device and you need to learn cryptography. <laughs> and so that's like the other direction is like everybody's a cryptographer uh, and running their own uh, server. It'll be interesting to see who pushes. And, and you need uh, to fastest. grow your own food and cut your own <laughs> hair and you like, you know, do it all, right? Yeah. The only way totally to make sure you have control over it. I do love the idea of everything on device and more um, compute sort of ending up in the device itself, like bringing the, the compute to the device. And we've seen more and more of that as time goes on and as, you know, mobile devices sort of like catch up. Um, but that's, that's the trend, right? Like it, it'll all end up there and then it'll just be this like swarm of interconnected you know, chunks of stuff that we're just carrying around on us and in us and, you know, in our cars and all over the house and to the point where it's like, you know, what is Bruce Sterling, like smart dust, right? Where it's just like the computers that you could just sprinkle as dust everywhere and it naturally like connects to, to everything. Yeah. Um, so there's, to me, I love this idea of privacy feels very comfortable when you tell me like, you know, like the secure enclave on like the iPhone was such a big deal for people when it was like, we, we keep your fingerprint in here, like the biometric thing you're talking about stuff, but it's in this secure enclave. And they've had like a huge marketing piece of every video about how that secure that enclave was. <laughs> um, that just shows you how much people care about this. You know, Apple knows they wouldn't talk about it just because they're nerds. They'll talk about it a little bit because they're nerds, but that was a huge, almost like theater, like, you know, like, um, I hate to say security theater, but almost right. We got to make people feel safe. Mm -hmm. A big part of being safe is just feeling safe. I feel like I, I, there's a, like a sort of framework coming out here in terms of sort of where, like, where is that transition point of what most people will want to have running on device versus what, if any, use cases are kind of acceptable to not be on uh, on device, and how does that maybe differ for personal versus productivity or what will companies want to have um, and sort of what are the limits of what can be cloud versus on device. But anyhow, I think there's yeah, some, a really great point there. I, I think of on device, not only just the privacy aspect of it, but also uh, like just reduced 
latency, hopefully, as well, which will just be a better user experience, too. So a lot of, a lot of pluses there, but I digress. So I think we skipped signal two. Sorry. Um, yes. Do you want to speak signal. to sort of how, how we saw this uh, this last year, Steph? Yes. Yeah. So signal two here, augmenting our existing screens with smart glasses and headsets signaled clear consumer value, a big win for technology that struggled to show an appealing mainstream use case. So we talked a little bit about retention earlier. Um, and I don't see this as like a shiny example. I mean, there's not necessarily AI involved necessarily in this at all. This is more so you have a giant screen in your field of view because you have these new devices. And that almost is more in the vein of like a next gen TV than like a new fandangled spatial computing, you know, quote end quote device. Uh, and I think that's actually really exciting. Like we saw a couple, like some of the specific devices I talk about here, um, uh, which are called the X-Rail, uh, Rokid, uh, some folks, if they saw the Apple Vision Pro uh, uh, announcement, video, they talk about like freeing your device and your apps will follow and you can you know, have this giant, uh, either giant desktop or giant entertainment experience where you're just watching a, a movie in this, this, this really high resolution device. And that is something that is really clear for folks who are maybe less familiar with this technology. Uh, and I think that we as a, as a medium, as an industry have really sort of struggled to show what is that mainstream use case. So if we're not talking about that, intersection point with AI, I think the Alice question earlier, big screens with spatial, that's that we can we can run with that. That's a retentive use case. And I'm sure we'll we'll see a lot more of that this year. It feels yeah. like they really hit that one. Like it's just so easy to understand and everyone's like, yeah, my laptop screen could be bigger and like I could have three screens around my laptop screen. Like it's such a simple bridge that people really got it. Um, you know, I don't know if you noticed this stuff, but in almost all of these like things like, okay, so check out this dude here, um, you know, playing the x glasses. He's in some like, that's like fancy designer couch. He's got his big plants and, you know, huge, you know, floor to ceiling windows with those like, you know, nice, uh, you know, drapes and stuff in the background. To me, this is like getting us ready for the ready player one future where we all live in, you know, an eight by 10 uh, container ship, like like shipping container um, in a dystopian, always raining future rather than in this like, you know, gorgeously designed loft, which you see in the Apple uh, Vision Pro stuff. Is this like, I don't, I don't know, to me, there's something funny about this. It just feels funny that, you know, you're, you're in your space, but you're not in your space, um, mm -hmm. especially with the movie thing. It's like, watching a screen the whole point of having a bigger screen is so that you could just be in the thing completely help us understand what's the difference between when would you want that kind of like mixed reality big screen or is that even just like a bridge that's just there for now uh to the point where it's it's all about just being in it completely yeah i think it's a little bit of column A, column A, a little bit of column B. So I'll talk a little bit about the use cases where this might be kind of useful long term. I think I, I imagine you're uh, you're on a long haul flight and you're in your cramped middle seat. I went to New Zealand and literally was in said cramped middle seat at one point. Uh, this is something you know have if you have your your uh, your headset and you have your your favorite series downloaded before the flight. This could be a great 
uh, great application for that. I uh, I worked with someone who literally took the X-Rail glasses and used them to play uh, play his favorite games on a long haul flight. So that's something where you might see having your own better personalized screen uh, kind of solo use case uh, persist. I think where we will see less of this, to your point, Al, you want to have a big screen so you can sit there with your, your friends and your family and watch this and not necessarily buy everyone in your family a $3,500 headset so you can <laughs> all either be watching the same thing or different things in a strange dystopian future where everyone's watching, <laughs> sitting around in a small space with their own headset. Uh, so I think this, this now starts to speak to like what are, I think there's two things that follow from this. What are multiplayer uh, or multi-person uh, use cases? Is there a way that, uh, I mean, other than just taking off the headset, that maybe people on uh, different devices <laughs> can somehow participate? Uh, I'm blanking, I think it's called Acorn Run. There's an experience that is actually de designed so that some one person is in headset and then other people who are on phones, the way the gameplay is, is, uh, is designed is such that you're actually, uh, like each person has kind of a unique role to play based on the device that they're, they're using. So I think there, that might be uh, sort of a, a trend that we see emerge along the way. Like how do we get more people involved in an experience? Cause yeah, up until now, anything in these headsets has been a pretty lonely single player, single watcher type of an experience. So I don't know, will, will giant screen solo be the be all end all? No, but I think it's an important first step. Is there to sort of figure out the space in between as well, in, in device completely immersed um, like work experience, like let's take one use case that Apple's pushing right now. You're standing around in your beautifully designed loft apartment uh, scrolling through spreadsheets and, uh, you know, talking to somebody else uh, on, like, you kind of got your two screens, um, but they're, the screens are floating around you in space. I don't understand yet what the utility is of having those two screens in your space versus just being almost completely immersed into the conversation with that person and the spreadsheet. Uh, as opposed to having those two things as giant floating screens in your room. Um, what's the, help me understand this. I don't get it. Mm, yes, I see your point. So this is assuming you have, maybe you already have a pretty large screen in front of you. You have the setup, you have a person on, like right now I'm on a pretty large monitor and I've got my newsletter up. I've got the, this podcast up here. Uh, I can see both of you. And so like, why would having this in a headset be much better? I think this gets to like, what is that, that strength of the medium? And it might just be, if you're just looking at a bunch of 2D stuff, uh, that alone either is not compelling or we need to figure out what like how to design better such that there is a stepwise or like what's the word I'm looking for step function increase in value for doing that because I think you're you're onto something in that if you're just looking at completely flat panels on a big screen versus in a headset what is actually the benefit is there something embodied that you are getting from that experience and I think this starts to get at sort of how do we design for this screen paradigm because yes this is part of the selling point is it's accessible because it's a next gen TV but we could also just have a next gen TV. Uh, so I think, yeah, you're pushing out something really important there. Um, I don't know, yeah. Patrick, I feel like you, <clears> you, <throat> I'll you've got lots to say on this. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, so if we look at these glasses and I think these are really useful because these are on the market, you can buy them today. Um, and basically there's a little screen up the top here 
and you get a screen that's overlaid. And so what that's called is that's called additive um, display because you're seeing your environment and it's adding light onto the display. So it's not gonna be a great movie viewing experience. I think they do have like caps and they basically black out uh, the screen so you don't see your environment around you. Uh, and I imagine these, I haven't seen these guys, but I imagine they're sort of similar um, use case. So what do you have? You have a fixed screen in front of you and you can watch a movie and, and it's <clears throat> locked to your head. So there's no understanding of the space around you and you just basically have a computer on your face. Well, if you don't have a big monitor, you're on a flight or you're traveling, it actually feels like a, a pretty good use case, especially since you can hook it into your phone and you could even have a keyboard. So anywhere you are, you have a giant screen that you can do work on. Now, I think, Al, your question is like, do these things remove us from environment? Uh, do they augment our environment? Why is it useful to see our environment when I'm just focused on the big screen? Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, and the question I would ask back to you is like, if every time you opened your laptop, you couldn't see anything else, would that be helpful? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Because I'll take it. I mean, if if you do experience the Quest Three, it is awesome. If you had experienced VR before, because you can see around you, so it's actually not like a utility. It's not a digital utility. It's actually just feeling like it's less of a burden. There is some, I don't know, Steph, you could probably speak to this, but there's some psychological claustrophobia that happens if you can't see your environment around you. But once you can see your hands and it's in color, it feels more comfortable. There's, there's a feeling of comfort. And then once you start to, you know, summon tablets in the air, it feels more magical. And you can see that by like the Twitter feeds of just people sharing their Quest 3 experiences, because uh, you can capture uh, the pass-through. Uh, and there's a value in just seeing your space. However, these X-Real uh, glasses are additive, as I mentioned, and the the um, Quest or the Vision Pro, those are not additive. They are pass-through video. So instead of like adding light to your scene, they can actually overlay and totally block out the environment behind you so it's much better for doing use cases where there's you know high need for uh, readability or there's an immersion involved um, but it's going to diminish your ability to see your space because it's going to like on quest it still looks grainy and on apple vision pro i've heard it's really good but also it's like a big headset so it's not going to feel as as lightweight as the, so those, those are like the two ways to think about seeing your environment but without a doubt seeing your environment while you're interacting with digital um apps is super super useful just experientially yeah, i think i was really indexing when when you're when you're describing that al i was very much thinking of the example where in the the apple advancement you have giant you know vision pro on your head and you also have your ecosystem uh, maybe a big screen in front of you in, in which case if you have one-to-one -one big screen like just put like push it like seeing if we can poke holes in this particular instance if you just have big flat screen monitor versus Apple Vision Pro, and you're bringing up, I don't know, FaceTime and a browser or something like that. What is that added benefit? I think this is where we start getting into what, like, how are you really designing for that media? Maybe there's something around the gestures. Is there something about the content? Uh, is there some way that that interrupts with your other devices better? I can think of like recording spatial video on your phone and then be able to view that in your headset or something like that. But if you don't have any of those things going, I think you make a great point in that like, what is the benefit? But Patrick, I'll 
also highlighted like some of those use cases that are really compelling. So. And it sounds like also a lot of the, a lot of this stuff just hasn't been figured out yet. And so something as simple as, Hey, there was this thing that you understand from before, we're going to take it here and provide some marginal utility, um, or at least portability, um, to something you just couldn't normally take with you otherwise. And so this idea of having a bunch of windows kind of confined to a computer screen floating around, it's like, oh, actually now you can have those windows just floating around your space. Um, and it's like kind of taking the old paradigm and bringing it forward. And then from there, we're gonna see that sort of bend and merge and evolve uh, as like a really simple bridge jumping off point. It's like a kid who, you know, only eats beef and it's like, okay, well, do you have rice and beef? Okay, could you have pasta and beef? It's almost the same thing, right? It's like, oh, you like peppers? Okay, well, peppers with this. And sort of just taking them step by step by step. It's like we're being led uh, through this technological evolution and we're the bottleneck, right? Like we're always the thing that's moving slower than the tech and trying to catch up. Yeah, we're building, we're starting to lay the groundwork for that mental model. And then, yeah, mental model is beef. And then you start introducing those other elements. And and then eventually we can start to move away from skeuomorphism and add more abstraction and all that fun yeah, stuff. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, no, I, I really like that analogy. Yeah, and we, we're seeing, you know, with the pin, uh, the AI pin, that's one form factor. There's a rabbit, you know, and these are physical form factors of how you might use AI. Your phone, obviously, is another one in your computer. But what's interesting, I think the glasses is a step change because you don't see the form factor anymore. You're not experiencing the device. The device is uh, is on your face and now you're using the world. And so that's I want to use that to just jump to uh, signal four, which to me is like super interesting because I think this is what spatial computing is all about as we talk about it, which is spatial computing is about the body it's about that when i move my head something different happens when i move my eyes something different happens i can use my hands something happens when i move over here something happens it's about me locating myself within the computer rather than a computer being here or over there but anyway steph uh tell us about signal four Yes, Signal 4. So multi-sensory inputs make for more natural interactions, reducing friction around spatial computing device use. So I think where Patrick was going here is some important scaffolding before we dive in here, because we're really talking about this embodied cognition. Like, why are these screens different? Like we had, like in 1968, we had this mother of all demos where the 2D graphical user interface was shown, and a lot of the interactions that we, we still use today, that was sort of, that was the level set there. And now we're pushing past that, all the things we've been talking about, ubiquitous computing, all these uh, themes are kind of converging. Ultimately, if you look at this from a cognitive perspective, this idea of embodiment of our body knowing and having that connection with our mind and how we perceive and how we distribute our cognition into other devices, and moving that into this realm of depth or z-space if you're designing for 3D. Uh, I think that's what's really special about these new technologies of spatial computing that we're, we're, um, we're talking about. And part of that, um, like being embodied, means uh, designing for different types of interactions than you know, tapping on a screen that were really kind of abstractions for how we interact with the real world. The example I love to give is like 
I am interacting with a real 3D object right now, or if you just want to say, <laughs> I'm interacting with, with a 3D object, but like I'm moving my hand to move this, you know, cup around. Oh, so like, what does that look like in, in headset? And now we're seeing, you know, hand tracking, uh, uh, direct interaction, like direct touch or, uh, or direct gesture if you're talking to meta people, if you're talking to Apple people, uh, where you can directly interact with an object like using your, your finger as you would in the real world and it responds like we have that uh, that kind of natural mapping, that HEI term of how we interact with our environment coming online digitally and that's really exciting and that's part of what makes this, these devices and this medium of spatial computing special. And we're also seeing uh, more eye tracking. Uh, that's something I write in here, how Apple Vision Pro promises this really you know, high performance eye tracking capability and then audio as well. It's not even just having spatial audio. So it sounds like you know, sound sources are coming from like the appropriate places in the room, but there's also this aspect of spatial audio listening to your environment so it can kind of model your environment in your uh, your headset. So I think that's kind of a neat play, spatial audio being both kind of input and output. So you kind of have these devices building out their perceptual system. Uh, and that's by virtue of doing that kind of enabling us to use our perceptual systems more fully and really be embodied. Uh, so anyhow, long story short, more senses we can use the better and these devices are allowing us to do that. And that's exciting. <laughs> Do you remember, do you watch Ghost in the Shell, like the original anime? Yeah. Do you remember the scene where there's like a, a robot, I think it's like an AI assistant guy, or he's mostly enhanced, and he approaches a computer, and his fingers like explode into, you know, essentially like, you know, fractals, and then he can just like type crazy fast, because he has like so many fingers, um, like replace thing, and it's like thank God we're not going that way, right? Like, this is so much better. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm stoked about this. This is good. Yeah, our, our body is becoming the UI for better or for worse. I don't know, when, you're, when you said that, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, oh, this reminds me of that. I, I, love, I love saying that, like, our, you know, our bodies are becoming the UI. And that, in that particular ghost special use case, it might be more of a negative. But I'm thinking of it as more <laughs> positive. Yeah, to... That was mildly dystopian, for sure. And, well, yeah, there's a lot in there. Um, <laughs> I, even as, so just my experience, you know, as, as someone who's, you know, further away from the making of this stuff is like spatial audio. Like sometimes I'll get like freaked out. I'm like, are my headphones working? Right. Like I have to like check and I'm like, are they on? I have to like take them out because it's so accurate often of like, it just, you forget that it's coming through the device. Right. And when you start to get to that point it starts to feel so natural and so good and so connected. Um, it's a different like level of experience. And I guess, Pat, what you're describing about, you know, the um, MetaQuest 3 experience of being able to have that super cl like clean pass through and stuff floating around naturally in the space just feels good. Like it just feels right um, in a way that we like, like we just, it sounds like we're just going to like it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's mad. And to, to that end, like, so I do think, um, like, to the point about fingertips exploding into things, what, you could not do that. Like, you can do that now on Quest 3, You and it's, you know, slightly dystopian, but it might be fun to see, is, like, your fingertips exploding. You could not do hand tracking properly on any other device, and you will not be able to because you need two cameras here. 
So, you know, we think about VR or spatial computing as, oh, I can see the world, but really like this next step change is I can use my hands. That's never happened before. I can use my hands in this kind of six degrees of freedom way with like really fine uh, motor controls. So let me just share this. Do you remember this guy? Natsuki? Oh, yeah. yeah. I used to work with Eric at Adobe. Oh, really? So, Blast yeah, from the past. Like, yeah, Blast from the past. Yeah. yeah, I remember yeah. he was like big in Flash and stuff and like always looked at his stuff. But he is now doing all this Quest stuff. And his feed is just filled with super cool uh, finger manipulations, creative tools. Um, and he's even used, and this is the thing I want to talk about, is like he's starting to play with his phone. Because on Quest, you can't actually get the pass-through. You can't read it as a developer. So he's kind of using his phone as the reading device and integrating it into his uh, XR experiences. So as an example, here's one where you're like typing on your phone and putting these letters into the environment at the location that your phone is, is looking at. And so, well, what does this mean? Like, what, how, how is this different? I think what you can see here is he's needing a device so even though he's got a headset and he's got a bunch of floating stuff there's still this attraction to having a device and i think that's what's going to be the game changer is like now anyone can make a kind of soft device and put it into people's hands and just manifest it by like you know now you're just using your hands but then you can also take hard devices like physical devices and integrate them into this virtual world. We will always need this kind of device that we can touch or see or hold or manipulate with our hands. But that interplay between like the world and this device I'm using and the things that I'm putting around me, it, I, once again, it comes back to this kind of art and just playful use of the medium uh, that's going to show us uh, what that right form factor is. And it's going to be a lot of form factors. Like if you think about like the amount of, of physical technology that we've built around us, speakers, screens, phones, everything, those things require factories to build. In this new world of like anybody can make a device and it's in your hands, it's software. There's just going to be an explosion of, of form factors uh, that are digital as well. So something to watch. Yeah, I feel like what you're, you're saying, Patrick, there's this quote that I really love. Um, from, from Marshall McLuhan, we shape our tools and therefore our tools shape us. How, how does how are the developer tools looking and, and what are the new opportunities to, to build for this stuff? Yeah, so Signal 5 here is about some really positive developments we saw in 2023. Uh, so some tools coming online to help, uh, help creators of these spatial computing experiences uh, develop uh, across different platforms. A couple examples of that after the Vision Pro announcement, uh, there was a launch of um, a beta program of something called Polyspatial by Unity uh, for creating spatial experiences on Apple's platform um, called Vision OS. Uh, Unity also launched something called AR Foundation, uh, letting developers build uh, multi-platform AR apps. Uh, and there's plugins for a number of different headsets. We've got OpenXR for MetaQuest and support for HoloLens 2 and Android and iOS. Uh, so you can start to see these experiences on these different uh, different surfaces, on these different platforms. Uh, we saw some movement, some positive movement around OpenXR. So that's the open standard uh, that allows you to develop um, across platforms for AR and VR. Uh, we saw that um, 
that a headset called Pico 4 and Magic Leap 2, so the successor of the experience of the headset I had that whole Tenendi Super Ross experience on. Uh, you know, they're supporting OpenXR, so really, really positive signs for the the developer community here. Uh, but I think what we'll see emerge more and more this year, now that we've got you know both more smart glasses, wearables, as well as Quest 3 and Apple Vision Pro in market is the design principles starting to emerge around this. So like, what is, so for taking a step back to kind of where we are today, we have responsive design for the web. I open up a website on desktop versus on phone and it kind of scales appropriately based on where I'm looking at that experience. And we have templates and Squarespace around this and this is sort of well-baked at this point. But what does this look like when a relative few have one of these headsets, but a lot of us have our phones or our laptops, um, or we're going in between these devices. Uh, how do we, you know, how do we kind of scale or what I call like spatially, like the, I have a called the spatial translation framework. What do we kind of pick and choose to bring over in 2D, in 3D, embodied, not embodied? Uh, and I think we'll see a lot more of that coming, kind of building on those positive developments around cross-platform development that we saw last year. What do you think is the the timeline for when you know there was the time kind of before the transition period and then like rock and roll we're we're doing it this is it like we're we're living in spatial computing every day we're all you know using our bodies as the interface we're all there um when does it happen is this like a five year thing is it end of 2024, what, what's the timeline in your mind? Oof, timeline. Uh, I think it'll be, uh, I'll, I'll kind of work up to the answer because I know off the top of my head, it's not like, yes, five years, I have high confidence because of these reasons. I think it'll probably be more, I, I, I divide it broadly kind of into near-term versus far-term. So like near-term, I accept that like screens are gonna be part of people's device ecosystems, like the screens that we know and love today, like laptop, mobile, tablet, smartwatch, uh, and we'll focus on kind of this interoperability piece that I was talking about to grow, um, you know, new devices from maybe like a 0.1% of the time thing to maybe a 5% of the time thing. I'm going to guess that for people at least who can, you know, have access to these devices, that might be like the next couple of years. And we're not even talking about broader adoption of these headsets and the like, cost associated with it. I love that. You know, Meta Quest, uh, Quest 3 is at least much more accessible in terms of cost just to buy one of these things. So I think that'll that'll help. But I think yeah, maybe next couple of years, by and large, it'll still be a very small percentage that we're using these spatial computing devices relative to our broader tech ecosystem of all these other kind of familiar things. Longer term, is that five-ish years, more than five years? Let's call it long-term for now. I think we still need to focus on this interoperability, but the percentages shift. So now these headsets, your smart glasses are not just 5%, maybe they're moving up to 25% or 50%. So I think being in my spatial computing bubble for the last decade, I think a lot of us are like, when we get our North Star Air glasses, we're just gonna chuck our phones into the trash bin. I'm like, no, definitely <laughs> not. Uh, human behavior does not change that quickly. And what is the value we are delivering? So. I think whatever that time scale is, probably several years figuring, you know, start of this, this podcast, we we're talking about, you know, folks in Silicon Valley working in UX at tech companies, maybe haven't even tried a headset yet. Mm. 
for the broader <laughs> broader population, this is still a ways out, but I think that is what it will look like and that we have to remember that we're in a ecosystem of different devices that are all helping us get different things done, different jobs to be done if you want to use that, that framework. Uh, and it'll just be kind of the percentage will shift to be more on these different devices, um, these new spatial computing devices relative to like phone or laptop. Yeah, and the thing might to watch might be um, how are incumbents, device incumbents, gradually taking pieces of this feature and putting it into the devices that you know and love. So um, I'll just throw up here, like one example would be when it comes to inputs, would be the Apple Watch um, 9 allows you to just sort of double tap uh, and then invoke uh, an action. So that's like a little hint towards the future of sort of hand-based um, computing. Another one would be uh, just uh, the uh, Apple Vision Pro. As a developer, you're just making an app and we're putting it into space, we're making the padding a bit more, but like you're building the apps that you know and love and we're putting them into the space for you. Uh, the other thing to watch that I am most interested in because it's hardest to find is, I'll just put this up here. Uh, what are the hackers doing? So this is Steve mm -hmm. Mann and he's been wearing this wearable for 35 years. And I think part of your question now is like, well, when are we all going to be wearing wearables? Like, is that a thing that's going to happen? Are we really going to do that? But the future is here for Steve Mann. <laughs> and uh, so how, do, how, does it, uh, how does it become acceptable or useful for the rest of us? And again, I, I do see what he has done as a form of art. So it's just another example of artists leading the way, us seeing, oh, well, that could be cool, and then sort of making it more uh, acceptable. So I'd watch for those two things, like incumbents integrating uh, XR, AI, gestures, this stuff, and then like, what are the hackers building that is just kind of crazy, and you're like, I can't believe you can do that, I want one. Yeah, I love yeah the general approach of hackers as kind of these these extreme users that are you know giving us more signals of the the future yeah i think that's that's a really yeah that's a really strong point but don't throw out your iphones laptops or scoop out your eyeballs just yet we've <laughs> got a little more time yeah. yeah yeah no matter how excited i get about yeah embodied cognition yeah not not quite there yet <laughs> Awesome. Well, this has been a great uh, jaunt down uh, down uh, the past year. Uh, next year will be really exciting, and we will subscribe to your newsletter, uh, Sendful, uh, to learn more about it. Uh, thanks for being a guest on uh, The Machinist Message. Yeah, thanks, Patrick and Al. Really fun to be here. Thanks a lot, Steph. Till next time. Stay tuned. All right. Bye now.